Shalom. Peace. Good morning. Great to be here with you during this Christmas season. I understand that uh, you have met two of my fellow friends already who have preached at Genesis House, Lazarus and last week Malachi. Uh, they wanted me to extend a warm welcome to you and tell you how much they enjoyed their time here and told me they will be continuing to pray for you and your ministry in the next uh, year coming up. But for those of you who don't know me, my name is Joseph, uh, better known as Mary's husband. Now Andrew asked me to come speak here to you today so you could hear my take on the days and the events leading up to the birth of our mutual savior, Yeshua, in Hebrew, that's the Hebrew name for Jesus. After all, it is what Christmas is all about. So let me begin by telling you a little bit about my background. I actually come from really good spiritual stock. You will notice that in the opening verses of Matthew, in chapter 1, he records a genealogy. So I want to take a minute with you right now to look at some of the names of my relatives that I'm descended from, to see how rich my spiritual heritage is. In chapter 1, verse 2, notice there that Abraham is one of my descendants. He is considered the model of faith in the New Testament. In verse 6, a man named King David. He's described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. He's a relative of mine as well. In verse 11, King Josiah. He's described in Scripture as being very righteous, who walked in the ways of David his father and did not turn aside from his obedience to God. In verse 13, we have a cool guy named Zerubbabel, uh, revered of one of the greatest heroes in the Bible. He initiated the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem after the, sec after the Solomon's temple was destroyed by Babylon. I say all this to you not to brag, but to show you where I come from and to recognize that I see myself as a very privileged man with such rich spiritual heritage. And many of you who come from long generations of Christians in your home and generations of Christians after Christians, you understand what a blessing this can be. But the part in the genealogy you don't want to miss is the one in verse 16. It says there that I was the husband of Mary by whom Jesus the Messiah was born. So let me tell you a little bit about his birth. Yes, it was incredible and a wonderful thing, but the time leading up to it and the events that transpired beforehand were extremely difficult for me to work through. Look at verse 18. He says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to me, before we came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Before I get into what it was like to find out Mary was pregnant before we were married, I want to talk to you about what betrothals are like in my culture. The closest equivalent to a betrothal for you is an engagement. It's basically a pledge to marry somebody. So there are similarities, but there's also quite a lot of differences. So here's how it worked. If I wanted to marry a woman, I didn't give her a ring, like we do, or you do. Instead, I would give a dowry to the girl's father. It was sort of like a purchase price for a bride. But I wasn't buying her, per se. I was just demonstrating to her dad that she was someone of value, and I, I saw that in her. So dowries could be paid in goods or services, and were negotiated depending on wealth and circumstances of each individual. So an example of goods was Abraham, 
Remember when he wanted to marry Rebecca? He gave her large quantities of jewelry made of gold and silver and of beautiful clothing. Examples in services was Jacob for Rachel. He spent seven years in labor with, um, with serving Laban as a hired man. You talk about crazy kind of love. The weirdest one, probably in scriptures, in First eighteen, sorry, First Samuel eighteen twenty-five, David wants to marry Saul's daughter Michael. Saul asked for a hundred Philistine foreskins. David brought two hundred. <laughs> but those are extenuating circumstances, and I would suggest that you men here today don't do that if you want to marry a woman. Stick to the ring. But once the dowry was given, the father would recognize the daughter was now betrothed to be married. She was off-limits to any other potential suitor, and that was key. The key difference, though, about the engagements versus betrothals today is that engagements today can be easily broken off. Yes, there's emotional pain, and there can be some family fallout, but you can get out of it, and it's pretty simple to do. There's no paperwork involved, for example, and no legal action taken. But a betrothal in my culture was so binding that it was treated in essence like you were already married. The only way out in my day was to get a certificate saying we were getting a divorce. We had to have a legal proceedings with a certificate of divorce in place. One thing we all expected though, when we got married, on the, it was on the day of the ceremony, when it came to consummating the marriage, we expected a virgin daughter, because that's what we had been promised and were hoping for. So important was this, that strict rules applied within the law of Moses to ensure that this would be so. You could imagine my shock then, when after Mary returned from visiting her Aunt Elizabeth, I could see a little bump in her belly. And to be honest, when I initially saw her, I was totally shocked. I was completely crushed, and I felt totally betrayed. I couldn't believe that she'd broken our betrothal, and that she had been so unfaithful to me. To make matters worse, when I confronted her every time we talked, she maintained her innocence. She actually told me she was never unfaithful to me, but it was God of all people who impregnated her. Initially, I was like, Mary, do you think I was born yesterday? I mean, at the, at the same time, though, I knew her character. She'd never given, given me anything to doubt her before. So I was torn. I saw the situation in her, in her tummy, but I knew that she was a woman of character, and I was so emotionally distraught. And the whole thing was so confusing to me. So, based on the fact that in history, no other person has ever been impregnated without a sexual relationship, I believed the worst. Proof was in the pudding. So, let me tell you what my rights were, though, as a man who was duped in this way. From the commandment found in the law, if Mary was actually guilty and had broken our betrothal, her life was permitted to be taken. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with a woman and the, the woman, thus she shall purge the evil from Israel. If there's a girl who's a virgin engaged to a man, betrothed, Another man, another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death. The girl who is engaged, because she doesn't cry out, in other words, tell everybody what the man's up to, 
and the man because he violated his neighbor's wife. Interesting, he calls her the wife in a betrothal state. Thus he shall purge the evil from amongst you. The problem for me, though, was this. You had to be a witness for this to be true. If you're going to make an accusation to stoning, you had to be a witness. Look, if a man is found lying with a married woman, you have to be found in the act, caught. The issue was, I couldn't be sure. No one was there to witness this. The other problem was, Mary, I'd never seen Mary with another man. Neither did anybody in my village or our family anywhere. Plus, I knew her character. I knew who she was as a woman, and she'd, been t she'd always told me the truth. So taking her life by stoning was not an option for me. So the only way I could see myself getting out of this was to pursue the legal action of the divorce. Pursue, save her life, but break the betrothal legally. And so that's what I did in verse 19. I sought to do this in my mind. This is the goal I was going to accomplish. In 19, it says that I, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace Mary, planned to send her away secretly. Matthew is right, and the reason that I chose to divorce her privately and not public was because I didn't want to disgrace her. You see, the situation was bad enough already. I didn't want to drag her or her family's name through the coals anymore. Especially in our culture, because it's a shame and honor culture. So she would have brought shame on our family and her own family and my family by doing this. There was enough shame already and disgrace, and I didn't want to do anything more to make it public and humiliate her and her family. So I just decided to do this in a private setting, even though I had the rights to make it public if I wanted to. But the truth is, I wanted to marry her, and this is not what I wanted, and I didn't see any other way out. There was no other way around this. But then something incredible happened to me, and God stepped in and revealed he had other plans for me and Mary. Look at verse 20 and 21. But when he... When I had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to me in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call him his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I don't have to tell you how relieved and elated I was to hear the angel's message. <laughs> Mary hadn't been lying to me. The character I had fallen in love with and believed her to be was truthful. She hadn't been unfaithful. The baby she had been carrying was supernaturally conceived by God and not by a man. But not only was she telling the truth and who was responsible for her pregnancy, she revealed too who she was carrying. This was the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, she had shared this with me already, that she had had a dream months earlier when an angel appeared to her. She told me that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and bear God's Son, and His name would be Jesus, which means in Hebrew, Jehovah shall save, or God of salvation. Here now, the angel was confirming, to the message, confirming me to the message that she had told Mary, he had told Mary earlier. You can imagine again how grateful I was to hear this. And how much of a, 
a whopping discovery this was to find out too that who the identity of this son was. So while the whole idea of the virgin birth seemed incomprehensible to me at first, I was reminded later, as the years went on, that this was not an afterthought by God, nor an accident. This was a fulfillment of prophecy found in the Old Testament scriptures that I had read before, but not seen. Verse 22 and verse 23 explains this by Matthew. Now all this took place to fulfill what, the prophet, what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which, translates, which translated means God with us. Now this quote comes from Isaiah, written in the time when King Ahaz was king of Judah. King Ahaz was scared that the kingdom of Judah was going to be destroyed by northern Israel and Syria. So again, remember, Israel was split into two. There's a northern and a southern kingdom. King Ahaz was the king of the southern kingdom, but northern Israel was often in, in, at war with them. And so northern Israel formed a pact with Syria to come against me in the south, or uh, King Ahaz in the south, to basically try to take us out, to destroy our kingly line. And, I would, and the king Ahaz was so panicked that he would lose this kingly line that he was starting to get frightened. And so God speaks through the prophet Isaiah to this king and says that this was never going to happen, that David's royal line of kingships would never be broken. And you know what the verse was? This one right here. He says, don't worry, King Ahaz, about the, about the kingly line being destroyed because a virgin will be with child and will bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel. Jesus was a fulfillment of Isaiah's promise to Ahaz 750 years earlier. You know, I must tell you though, I was grateful for that dream. It was all I needed to change my course of action. I was no longer going to seek to put her away privately. And I trusted Mary once again. Look at verse 24 and 25. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. The importance of the virgin birth is so great that Matthew mentions it twice in this passage. He mentions it twice. You notice in verse 25, he says that, that I kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. Did you notice again in verse uh, 18, it says that, um, that while we were betrothed, um, this happened before we came together, before she was found a child. This idea of maintaining her virginity before she actually gave birth to Jesus is a major, major importance to Matthew. And you know what? It should be to us as Christians as well. It's very important that we understand that I was not the father. So I wanted to finish my time with you discussing why it was so important that the virgin birth was in place and that I could not be the dad. Some of you might be thinking, what's the big deal? Why can't I? Why can't Joseph you? Why can't you be the dad? Why was it important that Mary was a virgin? Wouldn't Christianity still exist today? if you were the father? The answer, church, is absolutely no way. 
This becomes obvious when you understand that Jesus had to be both fully God and fully man in order to fill God's plan of salvation for the human race. You see, if I hadn't been the father of the Lord, this would create a host of major problems. First of all, Jesus could not have been divine. If I was the father, he could not have been divine. He would be simply a human being. Mary and myself together creates a human, not divinity. He wouldn't be the son of God like the Bible clearly said he was going to be from the Old Testament scriptures, but the son of Joseph and the son of Mary. Furthermore, if he was born through our, through our conception, it meant that Jesus would have had a beginning, rather being an eternal being, which dismantles the entire trinity. Second, though, if I was the father, the next thing that occurs from this, if he's not divinity then, it means that Jesus couldn't, would, would have been a sinner. He would have been a sinner. He wouldn't have been sinless. Because he would have inherited the curse from Adam that he passed down to all humanity. You remember Romans 5, 12? Just, therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death didn't exist, in the beginning, right? Adam and Eve were created as eternal beings, but when he rebelled against God, death entered in the world. So if you ever wonder why we die, it's because Adam brought this upon us. <laughs> so death spread to all people because all have sinned. So since the, fall, since the fall of Adam then, because he brought the curse on humanity, the only thing a sinning person can produce is another sinning, sinning human being. Generation after generation of this in place. So if Jesus had two parents with Adam's cursed DNA, he could not have avoided the contamination of humanity, which would lead to another major theological issue, which is the third problem. If he was a sinner, he could no longer be yours and I's perfect sacrificial substitute for sin. Remember in the Old Testament, perfection, sinlessness was important, was actually fundamental for animal sacrifices. The animal sacrifices of, in the Passover, for example, had to be a perfect unblemished lamb, had to, have a, 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 had to be a, a year old, um, had to have all these qualifications on, on what it was like in terms of its uh, uh, perfection, but also how you sacrificed it. Remember God's beef with Israel and with, through the prophet Malachi was the priests had started using lame animals and sacrifices to avoid using their best. And God had a, took huge exception to that. So if Jesus was not of conceived of the Holy Spirit then, he could not have been a sacrifice for us. You and I could not be given the offer of salvation. It's by his perfection and his righteousness that we can stand before a holy God with no fear of death or punishment because he escaped death. If the wages of sin are death, the only reason why we die is because of sin, if he's sinless, he can't die. So we, by putting our faith in him, we basically hang on to his power of escaping death to escape death also. And this is really important, church. I hope you notice this now. With no, with I'm the father of Jesus, there is no Christianity. Jesus is a sinner. There's no offer of salvation to you. Did you know a point of interest that 
the Bible never refers to me ever as being the father of Jesus Christ. I'm never called the father of Jesus Christ in scripture. At best, I'm called the husband of Mary. And I don't feel all like a victim because of that. I feel blessed because of that. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had gone, that's me and Mary, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to us in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Didn't say, hi Joseph, you're Jesus' dad, take off. He says, take the child and his mother to Egypt. Look at 2.20. Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. <laughs> I never get called the father of Jesus anywhere in scripture because Christianity does not survive and does not exist and you will not get to see the Lord in glory if I am the dad. So the necessity that Jesus be fully God for salvation to be enacted, we've seen that. But it was also necessity that he be fully human, which is what the virgin birth also accomplished. I'll give you two reasons why he had to take on human flesh in order to fulfill God's promises or in God's purposes. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, and the children the reference to us, like you and I, he himself, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through his death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Therefore, now watch this, Jesus had to be made like you and I in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of people. Now, propitiation is a fancy word to mean satisfy the wrath of God. Right? So imagine you're an angry parent against your kid because they've done something wrong and, and something is done to satisfy your need to take out vengeance on your kid. You appease it. That's what propitiation is. You appease the need for the father to take out vengeance on his children. Jesus' death did that. But here's what's important. Do you know the only thing that covers sin? The only thing that can cover sin and, and, and atone for it is blood. Blood's the only thing that can cover sin. That's it. Not baptism, not communion, not attending church services, none of this stuff. Only blood. Watch this. Leviticus 17.11 For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourself in the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. But here's a problem. You know this church. Hebrews 10.4 makes it clear. It's impossible for blood from animals to take care of sin. It's simply a reminder. Because animals have no moral code, no moral compass. They can't love God, love neighbors, love themselves. They can't be generous, take care of needs, whatnot. They live by instinct, not morality. Jesus had to come to the world to spill blood, to make atonement for sin. In other words, he had to take care of a human problem by becoming human. <laughs> Second reason why he to be fully human, which only the virgin birth accomplished, if, is, that, is that he became... Um, yeah, he became someone we could identify with in times of need and trial and temptation. So he came so we could relate to him and he could relate to us. Hebrews 2 verse 18, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, 
he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Verse 4, chapter 4, 14 to 16, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know what Hebrews here teaches us? Jesus didn't take on human flesh just to die for us. He took on human flesh to live for us. See, if God's purpose was this, all I care about is the forgiveness of sins offered to humanity. If that's his only purpose in life in sending Christ, his solution could be very easy. You know what he would have done? He would have sent Jesus Christ to earth, maybe a week before Good Friday, would have had him stir up a bunch of trouble by his, his, his uh, crazy teaching, had him nailed on the cross that Friday, a week later, he could have gone straight, risen from the dead, and gone straight to heaven, and, then, and, and, and uh, that'd be it. Right? If all it was about forgiveness, he could have come a week before his you know, timely death, died out that Friday, rose from the dead, go back to heaven, and it's over. Forgiveness can be offered. But he didn't. Instead, he lived 33 years on this earth, enduring and facing everything we would have to face. Every trial and temptation experienced life as we do. He experienced hunger, fatigue, pain, betrayal, and the temptation to sin, just like we do, yet he never fell into disobedience to God. The fact that Jesus was born just like you and I were in flesh and blood, and he lived the same kind of existence that we do, means that he understands everything we are going through. And that's how we can turn to him, knowing he understands us. It's an incredible comfort. And he also taught us how to fight temptation in our lives. When Jesus was under temptation, and was threatened to, 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 when he was trying to, when the devil, for example, wanted him to sin against God, what did he do? He quoted scripture. He had a handle on the Word of God to fight through temptation, giving us an example of how to fight it. Other times of temptation, when he didn't want to go to the cross in the garden, he turned to prayer. Long, lengthy prayers. Because he was so weak, he wanted to sin so bad, and he turned to prayer. Again, he gave us a living example of what life is like as a, as a Christian. How we can live turning to the Word of God in prayer to get through times of trial, temptation, and avoid rebelling against God. I hope you see now why the virgin birth was absolutely essential and why I could not be the Father. So I want to leave you with three lessons today. Three lessons. Number one, the virgin birth was the only way to ensure that Jesus would be fully God and fully man. That's the only way. The virgin birth circumvented the transmission of Adam's curse of sin and death. Right? And it allowed the eternal God to be a perfect man. Which then meant it allowed Jesus to be the perfect sacrificial substitute for the penalty of sin that we deserve. If Jesus was born of human DNA, then he couldn't have been God. But he also had to be fully God. He also had to be fully God. 
sorry, also feel fully human, fully human, which leads to my second lesson. You need to be both fully man and fully God in order to fulfill God's plan for saving humanity. See again, fully God because he had to be the perfect sacrificial substitute for the penalty of sin we deserve, but fully human because only blood atones for sin. That's it. Nothing else atones for sin. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ for what he did for you, you receive his righteousness. You are forgiven because of what he did for you on Calvary. His blood, his righteousness is imputed to you. So you don't have to spill any blood because he spilt it for you. If he wasn't human, sin could not be atoned for. If he wasn't God, there's no sinless sacrificial substitute. Look at what Ephesians 1 7 says about the power of blood. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. God is so kind and gracious that he purchased us, he redeemed us, he bought us with the blood of the son and we receive forgiveness. Not communion, not baptism, not church attendance, by the blood of Jesus Christ. And finally, and I love this lesson, By taking on humanity, Jesus identified with us and gave us a living example of how we fight temptation and live a life honoring to God. By taking on humanity, he identified with us and then we can identify with him. It wouldn't make sense if he didn't face what we had to face in terms of struggles of life. Because every time you went to prayer and cry out to God for help, your prayer would sound something like this. You can't relate to me. You're just some like... Greek mythical God out there that's all-powerful and all-knowing and can't understand me, wants nothing to do with me, doesn't know what it's like to be human. So I'm going to cry out to you, but I know you don't care, you don't listen, you don't, I'm, I'm just like a minuscule speck in your eye. This way we can cry out to him and say, you know what, I know you sweat like us, you cried like us, you bled like us, you hurt like us, you felt betrayal like us, and yet you didn't rebel like us. (laughs) You didn't seek to be selfish like us. You weren't self-serving like us. You lived a life fully pleasing and honoring to God. So I want to end my sermon by leaving you with a motto to live by in 2020. This is the motto that Joseph, myself, wants to leave with you to put on your bumper sticker of your mind and your heart and your car if you want to. Jesus didn't take on human flesh just to die for you, but to live for you. I understand it's uh, custom here to have a time of dialogue. So um, I'll open the floor up to you to ask me, Joseph, any questions that you would like. Now we are 2,000 years removed from one another, so um, I might not know where you're coming from, but uh, I'll try to make the, the gap in time. (laughs) 